I see you were going to sit down no matter what I said. <clears throat> Feel free to sit down. Um, uh-oh, I got my 10-pound Baptist Bible. Takes this thing down. Um, okay, so um, before we get started, Pastor Kurt, being a real shepherd, asked who wants a handout. Um, I'm not asking, I'm just asking uh, ushers, and in fact, this is a reason to not sit in the back row here. If you can get up and you sit in the back row, please grab a pile of this from the tables and hand them out. Um, I'm not going to make you, uh, although you would fail the class uh, at the university, I'm not going to make you fill these in, but at the end, there's going to be stuff that you are going to fill out, okay, for you. So uh, the first three uh, are free. Um, any others? Everybody got them? You're going to need it at the end. Even if you don't want to fill in any of my blanks, um, everybody needs blanks. So, and um, some of you are still sitting there smugly. You're not intimidating. I've worked around academic physicians for my whole career. Nobody is more intimidating than them. So, uh, here is um, what a privilege to get to, uh, to uh, bring this series together this amazing uh, series on, on some of the key attributes of God. Um, the series called Good and Beautiful God. And what we've learned so far is God is good, trustworthy, generous. God is love. God is holy. He is self-sacrificing. God transforms. And last week, God is our rest. So he's amazing. He's tender, loving, gracious, compassionate. He's merciful. He's kind. He is so good. And he's so beautiful. But this series would be incomplete if we didn't finish by talking about God's power. You see, it's his power that actually gives traction to all of his other qualities. It's his power that translates his amazing character into action. It's his power that allows the good and beautiful God to actually impact a world that thinks it's quite powerful itself. Um, before we really start unpacking this, let me begin with just one example of how significant this is. If God was merciful and gracious, but not powerful, his mercy and grace wouldn't be able to save us. This is how important this is. Love alone can't save us from sin. It takes more than compassion for God to be the Redeemer. Let me give an example. Even if her mercy and compassion had been perfect, Mother Teresa could never save the world. Mercy and compassion alone are not enough. Now, some of you are thinking, wait a second, how many, I, from this tall I learned that grace alone saves us. Yes, grace alone, meaning we bring no merit. But God needs way more than grace to save, and you're still saying, well, that sounds, wait a second, I thought it was like grace alone, wasn't that the Reformation? Yes. Um, but for God to save sinners, it takes perfect grace mixed with perfect power. In fact, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It'll be up but uh, for the lazy ones, but for those of you who uh, 
who bring your 10-pound Baptist Bible. Here it is. We're going to start. 1 Corinthians chapter... I, that's right, I see those hands. Good job. Um, or, or this. this. This counts nowadays. Uh, as long as you're not watching the tournament. Um, okay, look at this. Verse 13. This is a staggering theological statement by Paul where Paul's saying grace isn't enough. Look at this. Verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead... Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Wow. Moreover, we are even found, Paul was, Paul would have gotten an F in English. Fortunately, he just knew Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, but in, so he didn't have to take English. But this is like a 93-word sentence, so hang on. Here it goes. Ready? Moreover, if we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we, are witnessed against, we witnessed against God that he raised Christ from the dead, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised, and if Christ has not been raised, you ready for this? If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Mother Teresa couldn't save anybody. Even if she had the grace and mercy, she didn't have the power. Look at this. You are still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Listen to what Paul's saying. If it weren't for God's power to raise Jesus from the dead, his power over victory, and victory over death, his power to overcome the forces of darkness, we would all still be lost. It's actually a foundational biblical concept. Here's your first blank. Get ready, find your pens, find your pencil. Here you go. God's love and grace alone, without the power of the resurrection, can't save. Listen to it again. God's love and grace alone without the power of the resurrection can't save. So notice what this means. Any series on the attributes of God is incomplete without teaching what the Word says about His awesome power. But unfortunately, there are lots of churches today that give an incomplete picture of who God is. Some only emphasize His love, His beauty, His compassion, His generosity, while leaving out His holiness and His justice. And so, in many parts of the church, you know what? We have lost the awe. We have lost the wonder. The angels are today saying what we prayed from the Scripture in Revelation, in the prayer, and much of the church, that kind of thinking about God has vanished. Now, it's probably true that there was a day when the church talked way too much about the fear of God, the power of God, maybe even the wrath of God. But you know what? The pendulum has swung in the extreme. Many teachers in our culture have created a tame God, a manageable God, a comfortable God, a God who doesn't get in our way, a deity at our beck and call. You know who has been created? A nice guy in the sky. But we diminish when we diminish God's majesty, it's impossible to overstate what we lose. You see, if God is not omnipotent, there is no hope for this world. So today I want to focus on what would happen 
if God wasn't infinitely powerful? <laughs> I want to show what a disaster it would be if the false prophets who have tried to create a nice, wimpy, milk-toast God were actually right. And to do this, I want us to build on this concept of how important it is uh, to have God's power and majesty as a reality of who he is. This issue doesn't just impact theology, it actually impacts all of life. It's not just salvation theology, we just heard from Paul where he said without power, we're, Jesus isn't alive, and without Jesus being alive, we're dead in our sin. Um, no, it actually impacts all of life, and because this is true, we could actually, of course, do an entire series on this, um, but I'm actually going to do a short message, one shot at it this morning. So here's how we're going to deal with it. We're going to take one little sliver of how it matters that God is all-powerful. Ever since the fall, human history has been filled with trouble and heartbreak and difficulty and suffering. Every one of us faces trials and hardships. Now, to be sure, some of our problems come from our own bad choices, but, but we also all face difficulties simply because we're in a fallen world. But these aren't the issues that we're going to deal with this morning. Instead, we're going to focus on how important it is that God is powerful regardless of where our problems come from, right? So regardless of whether our problem or our issue that we're in is because of a, a consequence of our own bad choices or because we are actual true victims in a, in a world that's evil mixed with power, which is a bad combination. So let's begin with two key concepts. Here's your next blanks, right? To help us with this message, to set this message up, here it is, key concept number one, no matter how good and beautiful and generous and loving and self-sacrificing God is, I just want to let you know how merciful I was in this key concept. Notice now the, um, all of those, those were all blanks uh, until uh, D Dana, I've told you, in fact, I think Pastor Kurt might have stolen this from me, Dana is the best accountability partner on the planet for me, right? a tenured professor and all this kind of stuff and get to teach in front of people and all that kind of stuff. And Dana adores me and she's not impressed. So she has helped me. Two blanks. You ready? No matter how good and beautiful and generous and loving and self-sacrificing God is, without power, he couldn't get us through the troubles of this world. And looking at it a different way, key concept number two, here you go. In a world like ours, if God is compassionate and merciful, but not powerful, then he can't really help us. Think about it this way. <laughs> if God is really nice, but not really powerful, then he can feel sorry for us when we face trouble. And he can sympathize with our plight. And he might even be able to empathize with us, but he's not able to deliver us from the forces of evil or to bring about justice or to give hope in our future. Nice, but not powerful, that God cannot help us. So here's the great news. Here's your blanks. The good and beautiful God is also unrivaled in his power. And aren't we glad? Now, this is classic orthodox biblical theology, right? Many of us have been taught this great news since we were small children. But let me make a confession to you. Even though I've known the theology of God's omnipotence all my life, 
I could probably spell omnipotence in the second grade. I mean, I, I, God was so good to me. I, I had the incredible opportunity to live a, you know, in, a, in a home where I was in Sunday school before I could talk. I was saved from an awful life of sin at the age of five. I could spell, I could spell om, omnipotence probably in the first or second grade. That, that's how long I've known that. So, so in my mind... I know he's all-powerful. I, I, I still, unfortunately, have this curious tendency to doubt that this is true. I've believed it all my life, and I still have this tendency. You see, um, I've studied the miracle of human life. I've seen the incomprehensible complexity of the human body. Every day I went home from medical school, I just shook my head and said, wow, isn't that amazing? This all just came from random purposeless forces. It was like, has the entire world had a stroke? The hand. You know what? They predict we're a half a millennium away from being able to do a mechanical hand like the human. 500 years away with as rapidly as technology is coming, they still predict it's 500 years away from being able to do this. So simple. And I've also studied as an amateur, not a professional, but around in one of the most amazing universities in the world for uh, astrophysics. I've studied the universe and I've seen how the immensity of the cosmos makes it obvious that the Creator has power beyond our ability to imagine. And yet, I still forget that his name is El Shaddai, the mighty God. I still forget that he has no rival. He has no competitor. There's a human that holds a box that has a button in it that can melt the world three times over now. He's not even worth mention. With all of our power, it doesn't, do, you, do you realize what we have isn't worth mention just compared to our mediocre star called the sun? It's incredible what our God is like. So I'm going to assume that I'm not the only one here this morning that has this tendency. Great theology and sometimes still doubt. So, so we're going to go through a series of passages about the disciples. I love teaching about the disciples because they can pretend that they were such schmucks and I've got it more together than they do. Don't you like that? I mean, you read in Mark. Next time you read through the book of Mark, look how it goes till chapter 9. And then after chapter 9, all of the rest of Mark is one embarrassment of the disciples after another. Jesus says, I'm going to die. Hey, who you think's going to be in charge? I mean, it just, it's really ugly. By the way, it's one of the biggest proofs that the New Testament is true. If you were making up a religion, you would never make the founders look that stupid. Okay? So, um, so I love teaching about the disciples. It makes me feel so much better. So here we go. Some of the disciples' famous lapses in memory. You ready for this? Here's your blank. Memory lapse number one. They forgot God's power. Look at Matthew chapter 14 with me. That's the first book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way into your Bible if you're new to the Scripture. Matthew chapter 14. And uh, we'll start with verse 19. Some of you will be familiar with this story. Verse 19, chapter 14 of Matthew. And ordering the multitudes to recline on the grass, 
He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. Got that? Everybody. All ate and were sat- they're satisfied. We'll do the estimate on the numbers in a minute. They picked up what was left over of the broken peaches, pieces, 12 full baskets. And there were about 5,000 men who ate, aside from women and children. So if this was um, just, they tended to have large families then, but let's say it was just the typical, uh, you know, two, two parents and two kids. This is somewhere in the range of 20,000 people fed. Okay, so if you'd been there that day, wouldn't this be the most memorable thing you had ever seen? Five loaves, two fish, 20,000 fed, 12 baskets left over. Um, How could you possibly forget this event? Wouldn't the afterglow of this spectacular miracle live with you every day the rest of your life? So from here, Jesus travels with the disciples to Tyre and Sidon, and then he moved on to the Sea of Galilee. The text doesn't specify, but these travels probably, if you look at the, the biblical historians, they think this took a couple of weeks. So here we are, probably less than a month after feeding the 5,000 slash 20,000 slash maybe 30 or 40,000, whatever it was, and Jesus finds himself surrounded by another multitude. Now, let me help you with this just for a second, because none of us remember the feeding of the 5,000 as we should. See, all of us have, we, we remember Jesus is meek and mild, he's, the, he's kind, he's merciful, he's really, he's the ultimate shepherd, he's so good, he's so gracious, he's so amazing, so... Um, so here's how I think of it. Is that he takes the loaf and somehow he's, you know, somehow he's multiplying this. He's saying, here, here, here's some, there's some. Oh, oh, you'd like some more? Okay, there you go. First of all, if you do the numbers, he'd still be feeding the 5,000. If our concept of how, right, do you realize how long it would take to feed 20,000 people that way? So do you realize what must have happened? I'm now going to ruin this for every time you read it in the future. Jesus takes the loaves and the fish and he says, okay, let's start with the loaves. And there's mountains of mountains of loaves going here. The disciples, they're all astounded. So they're getting the wheelbarrows and they're taking it. And, and so Jesus, okay, time, you can't just do carbs. We need, okay, here we go, fish. And there's these piles of fish. The entire valley smells. There's so much fish. And I told you, I'm ruining it for you for your next read-through. Except you'll remember Oh, oh, you're out of bread? Okay. The feeding of the 20,000. Now think about this. Less than a month later. (laughs) Chapter 15, look at the next chapter. Verse 30. And the great multitudes came to him, bringing with them those who were lame, crippled, blind, mute, and many others. And they laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. We'll see, he does this for three days. People coming from everywhere. So that the multitude marveled as they saw the mute speaking and the crippled restored, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel And Jesus called his disciples to him, and he said, I feel compassion for the multitude, 
because they have remained with me until now three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not wish to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. Now stop reading. I have to always explain this because I do this sometimes. I'm not rewriting the Bible, okay? I'm just going to tell you what verse 33 should say, okay? And it's going to be up on the screen. This is what verse 33 should say. Everybody ready? And the disciples said to him, Lord, this is no problem at all. We've been watching you heal the lame and make the blind see for the last three days. And we saw you feed way more people than this just a few weeks ago. We know that you can take care of this problem. Lord, there's nothing too difficult for you. That's what verse 33 should say. Remember, a month ago. But no. (laughs) Look at verse 33. This makes me feel so much better. Verse 33. And the disciples said to him, (laughs) I mean, Scripture, if you really look at it, there's unbelievable humor in Scripture. Can you imagine when Matthew was writing this down, how he must have been either crying or laughing at himself? Um, they said to him, where would we get so many loaves in such a place, a desolate place to satisfy such a great multitude? Can you believe it? Talk about deja vu all over again. See, if I were Jesus, I'm not. I'm an academic physician. It's way worse than Jesus. If I were Jesus, I would have looked up into heaven and this is what I would have said. I didn't put this on the screen because, you know, Jesus wouldn't say this. But this is what I would have said. Okay, Father, (laughs) I've worked with these bozos just like you asked me to. But this takes the cake. I just can't take it anymore. Either you give me a new leadership team or I'm out of here. Fortunately, Jesus is way more patient than me. Look at verse 34. Aren't you glad this is Jesus? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven, a few small fish. And he directed the multitude to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves and the fish. This is not in the text. Boom! Right? That's what he did with the loaves and the fish. And giving thanks, he broke and started giving them to the disciples. And the disciples in turn to the multitudes. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, seven large baskets full. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. What happened? They forgot what they knew. They undoubtedly had gone to Hebrew school and synagogue. Undoubtedly, they could spell omnipotent and almighty God and El Shaddai in Hebrew. They forgot what they knew. You see, they had seen the dead raised, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, and they had even seen Jesus already at this point walk on water. And yet, they still lived in doubt because they forgot his power. Listen, church. They forgot his power. Memory lapse number two. They forgot that even with his awesome majesty and power, this is great. He still cares about the little details of life. Turn a couple chapters to the right. Matthew chapter 17 now. 
Matthew 17, verse 24. This is such a subtle, Jesus is doing so many magnificent things, this is so subtle, you you may not have really even picked up on this if you've read through Matthew before. Uh, This is a magnificent miracle. Watch this. And when they had come to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? And he said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax, from their sons or from strangers? And upon his saying, just so the, the historical background here is they really don't, they shouldn't have to pay the tax, but Jesus does not want to create a problem or or, and it's not time for them to know who he is yet. So notice upon this saying, this, him saying from strangers, Jesus said to him, consequently, the sons are exempt. But lest we give them offense, listen to this. Peter, go to the sea and throw in a hook. What's missing? Bait. Bait. Everybody got that? Bait. Throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a stator. Guess how many drachmas there are in a stator? Two for Jesus, two for Peter. Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, think of this. Look at the, think of the backstory on this poor you know, fish that needed endoscopy. Um, think about this. Can you imagine the creator of the universe who ought to be out keeping galaxies from running into each other, going through the hassle of, ready? Having some guy who was out in a boat just happened to drop a coin into the water and just happened to be worth exactly four drachmas, and he just happened to drop it in the right place so that some random fish could just happen to come along and swallow it, so that it could just happen to swim to the exact place where Peter went to fish, so that he could just happen to snag it just in time to clear up Peter's tax problem? Isn't our God amazing? Folks, he should have been out taking care of a whole universe. And he cared about Peter's two drachma problem. He is so, shouldn't we be in awe? See, Jesus cares about every detail of our life. Isn't he good? He knows your job. Listen, church. He knows your family. He knows your health, your hardships, your finances. He knows your difficulties and your marriage and every other detail in your life. He knows about the relationships you have that you don't want. He knows about the relationships you you don't have that you do want. He knows all about it. I'm not asking for testimonies. And how easy is it for us to forget all the times the Lord came through? Has he ever come through for you? In the tiniest matters sometimes. In things that no one else would give a rip about, let alone the one who spoke the universe into existence. You know, Isaiah teaches. I remember Dana, and now I've watched Rebecca. They, They actually probably do know how many hairs are on Canaan's head. And you know Isaiah teaches? Even a nursing mother will forget her baby. But I will never forget you. I don't care where you are today. 
whether you know Jesus or not, he is there in every minuscule part of your life. And he's waiting for you to be on your knees saying, oh God, help me. Memory lapse number three. 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 They forgot to keep their eyes on Jesus. Wow, how many times have I done this? Matthew chapter 14. Back a couple of chapters. Matthew chapter 14, verse 22. Matthew 14, 22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat. He, by the way, was setting them up. And go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And um, when it was uh, evening, he was alone there. But the boat was already many stadia away, so several miles, from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were frightened, saying, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered to him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on water and came toward Jesus. If you're an underliner, underline this phrase. But seeing the wind... But seeing the wind, Dan, listen. But looking, he was walking on water with El Shaddai. And where did his attention go to? But seeing the wind, he became afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Now, if I were Jesus, I would have made this a long teaching moment. I would have been like Hollywood when they finally go unconscious and they're drifting down, which by the way, you don't do when you go unconscious, you float up. Um, but anyway, dr drowning expert, sorry. Um, as they're floating down, you know, then finally they get here and then they, they, they do CPR wrong, right? Because you're supposed to do compression only, CPR. But they do that. So the reality is, but look at Jesus. Instead of making this a big teaching moment, he, he, uh, he's amazing. He says, um, immediately... Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Any testimonies now? Isn't he amazing? And he said to him, aren't you glad he acted first and then taught? Here's the teaching moment. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Oh, man. Um, Peter has done this amazing uh, thing, walking on the water, but he makes a huge mistake, right? His big mistake shows how anxious we become during the storms of life, and it leads to two key concepts. Write it in. Key concept number one, we become afraid when we take our eyes off of Jesus and concentrate on the storm. Okay, you ready for this? It's a really cool thing to, nowadays to be a storm watcher. You can make lots of money on the Weather Channel being a storm watcher. 
I have, by the way, as an emergency physician at the busiest trauma center between LA and Dallas for my whole career, there is an infinite number of ways, stupid ways, that humans can kill themselves. I haven't even seen them all yet. One way is to be a storm watcher, trust me. So it's cool to be a storm watcher. You know what, folks? We become storm watchers, don't we? Anybody this morning come to church watching a storm? Think of it. We become afraid when we take our eyes off of Jesus and concentrate on the storm. Now, at this point in the message, I need to confess something else. I try not to preach in hypocrisy. It's not a good thing. God can't use hypocrites preaching as if they've got it all figured out and telling you what to do. So let me tell you, um, the Lord has had to teach me this truth many, many times. When the wind and the waves come into my life, everything within me wants to look at the storm. How about you? Everything within me wants to look at the problems. Everything within me wants to focus my eyes on the trial and the tribulation. But here's the point of the story. It's key concept number two. Write it in. You ready? As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus. Listen, church. As long as we keep our eyes on Jesus, the size of the storm is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how big the storm is because he is almighty God, the mighty one of Israel. He created every water molecule that exists in the universe. You see, our answer, our deliverance will never come from focusing on the storm. Stop being a storm watcher. It always comes from being a Jesus watcher. Oh God, help me to remember that. So the reason I turn my focus from Jesus to other things is because I'm just like the disciples. I forget how awesome he is. So look again at what they forgot. They forgot his power. They forgot that he cares about every detail of life. And they forgot to keep their eyes on Jesus. Number four. Number four. Yes, it's almost time for lunch on the grounds. I'm telling you, it's really good. Don't you like my outlines? I've told you before. At least it lets you know when you get to go to lunch, if nothing else, even if you don't fill it in. Look at this. They forgot something else. Number four. They forgot who was in the boat with them. Look at this, Mark chapter 4. The next book, you're in Matthew, the next gospel, the second gospel is Mark. Mark chapter 4, turn there with me, verse 35. This is a certainly in Western culture a world famous storm. Most people who've never gone to church have, have heard of this at some point. Um, so look at this, verse 35, Mark chapter 4. And on that day, when evening came, he said to them, let's go over to the other side. Then leaving the multitude, they took him along uh, with him just as he was in the boat, and the other boats were with him, and there arose a fierce gale of wind, and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. And he himself, this is just hysterical to me, he himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. Now, think about this. Here, let me take this away for a minute so I won't ruin your... They're all back there going, we're all going to die! Okay, right, I'm trying to, next read-through, it's going to be so much more interesting for you next time you go to the doctor. Right, but we're all going to die, we're all going to die, they're Eeyore. They're all Eeyore, all going to die. And look at him. Doesn't even care enough about us to wake up. He had spoken the universe into existence 
So you know what? There is no storm that'll even wake him up until we're all screaming. We're all going to die. So, um, aren't you glad I took that off? Um, okay, so, so, so this is amazing. Look at this. He, he, let me see if I can, uh, now I'm completely, I have no clue where I am. Uh, Okay, so the, they always was filling up. He himself was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they spoke to him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And being aroused, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. Salvation comes through perfect mercy, mixed with perfect power. Our God, our Savior, isn't he amazing? And he said to them, notice, fix their problem first, then taught, why are you so timid? How is it that you have no faith? You see, this passage is incredibly instructive. Why did they fear? Because they forgot who was in the boat with them. Now, when you think about it, this was actually silly. They knew who he was. They knew he was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the King of Kings. They knew he's the creator of the universe. He's El Shaddai, the mighty God. They knew he is the source of all life. Did they? (laughs) You'll see. I I think when I read scripture, I think really strangely, Uh, but sometimes it's instructive. Did they actually think the father was sitting on his throne, wringing his hands and saying, oh no, I should have watched the weather channel. I should have told Jesus not to go out in the boat. Oh my goodness, what am I going to do about this storm? Did they really think that God, the God of all creation, was going to die in a freak drowning accident? I mean, let's think this through. You see, the boat wasn't going down, folks, because the Boat had Jesus in it. And if Jesus is in the boat, death is even lost its power. Think about this. The issue is never how big the storm is or how complicated the problem is or how bad the news is or how hopeless the circumstances seem to be folks the issue is always whether i'm going to forget or remember who god is so as you think about the storms that you're facing the troubles as you think about the struggles there are really only two questions for every one of us in this room that matter first who is in the boat with you If you don't really know Jesus and aren't really following Jesus, you know what? Um, If someone else or something else is in your boat, it will fail you. There is no security in anything you're trusting in if it is not God and God alone. I don't care how much money you have, insurance you have, it doesn't matter. Ooh, dramatic effect. Uh, second, I, I did, by the way, I didn't ask them to do that. Um, okay, second question. If you are following Jesus, let me ask you today. Have you forgotten who's in the boat with you? Are you in the back screaming, 
Have you forgotten who he is? Have you forgotten that even the wind and the waves obey his voice? Now, as we get ready to close, I'd like to point out a paradox that often comes up in my life. I've known and followed the Lord for decades, five decades, in fact. And during those years, I, I, I had to get permission to marry Dana. She was in junior high when I married her. Um, anyway, during those years, I've read through the Bible many times. I've heard thousands of biblical messages. I've read hundreds of books about truth and theology. I might be telling some of your story. And I believe the historic creeds. I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he died for my sins, and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. And I really do believe that there is a day coming when he'll split the eastern sky and return in power and great glory, and the trumpet of God will sound, and the earth will be shaken, and he'll put his feet in Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives, and he will set up his kingdom, and every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I believe with all my heart and all my mind those truths. Uh, but there's more. Let me, let me tell you what else I know. I know that throughout all of my life, my God has never left me. He's come through on that incredible promise. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. My God has never forsaken me. He's been with me through every problem, every storm, every trial. God has been absolutely faithful to me. How about you? I know all of these things, but here's the paradox. Here's my confession. Somehow, despite who he is and despite all that he's done for me and despite all of his faithfulness, sometimes I forget his power. And I forget that he cares about every detail of my life. And I take my eyes off of Jesus and I forget who's in the boat with me in this storm. And when I do this, you know what happens? My problems grow. And they get bigger. And my troubles become insurmountable. And the wind howls and it sounds all the stronger. And the waves look gigantic. And you know what? In my eyes, I'm making that God of the universe smaller and smaller and smaller. I confess. I suspect I'm not the only one here. Let me ask you, have we made God too small in our eyes? And is it time for the church to see our God for who he is? So let me ask, does this ever happen to you? Are your problems too big for Jesus? Or have you taken your eyes off of him and started looking at the waves? Uh, maybe we're, you're here this morning and you're facing some real hardship. Let me give some examples. Maybe you've lost a job or something in your family is, uh, someone in your family has hurt you. Maybe bankruptcy seems just around the corner or your marriage is in trouble. Perhaps one of your children is causing you great suffering. Maybe you're being mistreated by people who you thought were your friends. Maybe you're in, the, in pain or you have a major health issue. Maybe you have heard that diagnosis that nobody ever wants to hear. 
Or maybe you're lonely and you're desperate to have a relationship or the relationship you're in is wrong and you know it, but you're afraid. You're afraid. You're afraid to let it go and to let the God that you say is omnipotent have your future. Regardless of the specific issues, and this is just a short list, but all of us have our issues. Regardless of this, um, there's one truth that all of us needs to remember. It's the greatest truth in all of history. It's the truth that our God cannot fail. Nothing challenges his power. Nothing compromises his glory. Nothing tests his majesty, friends. Nothing threatens our God's authority. Nothing. Even the wind and the waves obey his voice. But one more thing. (laughs) I'll just tell you, I think God intervenes way too late most of the time in my life. Anybody else? I I completely agree with the the theology that everything is perfect in God's fullness of time, and I hate it. Don't you? Isn't Isn't it like, okay, it's not just when I'm hanging on the cliff, it's when I'm actually have gotten tired, let go, and I'm plummeting to my death. Doesn't it feel like that? Feels like that to me. Pastor Josiah, come on up. I've intentionally shortened the message this morning so we have a few minutes of unhurried time. Lunch isn't even ready yet. I preached so short this morning, folks. So just focus. Let me give us some instructions about how we're going to spend these last few minutes. In a moment, Pastor Josiah and the team, they're going to begin to sing a song. And as they sing, I'd like you to look at the bottom of your handout. Now's when everybody, whether you've got a handout or not, get a a pencil or a pen. There's a bunch of blanks at the bottom of your handout. And, And in those blanks, I want you to write down the problems and the troubles and the difficulties that you face. Some might be that you're afraid that it's coming. You're not sure it's here yet, but what you're afraid of. Uh, Maybe some of you are waiting for the test results for what might be a horrible diagnosis. And then after doing that for a minute or two, I believe many of us are going to want to join in the team singing this incredible song. But but, um, let me just point out, this is one of those those mornings where um, I need to instruct you Remember what you're writing down. You're writing down the troubles and trials and tribulations in your life. So don't look at your neighbor's list because your name might be on the list. Okay, everybody got that? Okay, so let me go through this again. (laughs) When the team begins to sing, take a minute or so to write down what you're facing, what you need to give to God, the things that look insurmountable, the things that just seem too big to overcome. And then, as the music continues, some of you may want to kneel at your, your seat as an act of just giving these issues to God, humbling yourself, saying, I-, I can't do this, Lord. If you're not who you say you are, and I'm in trust and faith, I'm saying, you are Almighty God. These belong to you now, Lord. Take them. Others may want to stand and join the worship team as we sing these incredible words, and some may... I often have done stuff like this. You may want to come bring your troubles and just put them on the altar. Just a symbol of, Lord, I, I, can't, I can't deal with this. It's yours.
And um, then as we sing, listen to the words that as you become ready, if you want to, to stand and join in, we're going to sing this, let go my soul and trust in him. The waves and winds still know his name. Through it all, through it all, my eyes are on you and it is well with me. So take a moment to write the things down that you're bringing and then respond as you feel as we sing together.